even as we speak in the Tigray region of Ethiopia, in the Uyghur detention centers in China, in some of the brave women that come out protesting in Belarus that are jailed. There's rape happening against all of these women. Um, there is a huge epidemic of this going on. It's a war crime and we are in 2021 and no one's doing anything about it. Welcome to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab at Newcastle University. And our guest for this episode is Christina Lamb, award-winning chief foreign correspondent for the Sunday Times. Christina has spent more than 30 years covering wars and conflicts around the world. She has written nine books, including one with Malala Yousafzai, who was shot by the Taliban in northern Pakistan because of her campaign for girls to go to school. Most recently, Christina has written a devastating account of rape in modern conflict. And her book, Our Bodies, Their Battlefield, was shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford Prize for nonfiction. Now CNN has learned that soldiers in the Tigray region are using rape as a weapon of war, and we want to warn you some of what you're about to hear and see is graphic. In the conversation you're about to hear, we discuss why it's been so difficult to convince male editors to publish stories about the atrocities committed against women in wars and conflicts. He pushed me and said, you Tigrayans have no history, you have no culture. I can do what I want to you and no one cares. Christina offers advice on how to interview deeply traumatised people and shares her fears that our interest in foreign affairs has diminished in recent years. But she also explains how she got her big break as a foreign correspondent and I began our conversation by asking Christina whether she is happier writing books or reporting for newspapers. And actually, I always wanted to be a novelist before I became a journalist. Um, But I also love writing news and being on a breaking news story and going to places where things are happening. So it's great to be able to do both. My very first job was in TV. I worked as a trainee at Central TV. And in some ways, I think that was a good education because, you know, TV, you have to be much more brief and to the point and local news I always remember the news editors saying you know no one really wants to know what you have to say they're much more interested in what the neighbours are doing so you've got to grab their attention quickly so I always try and have some kind of sentence that is intriguing in some way or makes people want to to read on I don't kind of assume that people will just read the story and I think also when I started out Um, As a foreign correspondent, I was very young. I didn't know very much. (laughs) And I was 21, 22. And I probably wrote quite naively. But in some ways, that was quite helpful because I'd never assumed anything about readers because I didn't know very much. (laughs) And so I was sort of explaining things to myself as I wrote the stories. And I've always been a great believer in sort of keeping things simple, not overcomplicating, whether it's a book or an article. That sounds sort of obvious, but actually lots of people don't do that. They do overcomplicate and write this kind of stream of consciousness that is 
difficult for other people to decipher sometimes so you know just keeping to the the facts of what happened you know where when why um but also telling stories and i really i told you i wanted to be a novelist before i became a journalist i'm really a great believer in storytelling and i feel that my job is to be able to tell people's stories who maybe can't tell them for themselves because they don't have access, they're in faraway places, they might be about issues that people don't want to hear about. So for example, my book, which is about war rape, is something a lot of people find very uncomfortable, not least some of my editors who have rather I didn't write about things like that. And I personally do not think that just because something is uncomfortable that we should ignore it. On the contrary, we should be writing about it. But sometimes it makes it more challenging to find a way to write it in an engaging way that will will make people read it rather than just be put off and think, oh my God, I don't want to know. You say in your book that you began on this path of being a foreign correspondent almost by accident. Can you just describe how, how that happened? And then what was the, the point at which you thought, yes, that this is this is my natural, my natural home? Well, I certainly never set out to be a war correspondent, which is what I've mostly ended up covering. And frankly, I wish wars would end and so that I didn't have to keep covering it. the places that I've covered. The wars seem to never end, like Afghanistan's been going on 40 odd years. And uh, Iraq and Syria and Libya and all these places just go on and on. We don't seem very good at ending wars anymore. I had never met a journalist. Right? Um, my parents read the Daily Mail largely because my dad liked the horse racing. So I didn't grow up in a family where we kind of discussed the news or anything like that. And then at university, one day some friends were going to a cheese and wine party which sounds very kind of 80s and so I went to this party and it turned out to be for the university newspaper and so the different section editors spoke about what they were doing and I thought this sounds really interesting I love writing and I like um, talking to people I'm curious about what people were doing so I joined up and I ended up editing that paper. So that sort of was my way into journalism. And still, when I left university, my plan was to be a journalist for a, a short while and um, make a little bit of money and then go and rent a garret somewhere and write my great novel. But what happened was that I interned at the Financial Times after I left university in the summer. It was supposed to just be two weeks, but they kept letting me stay longer. And it was brilliant. I loved it. And I saw, because in those days, they had more foreign correspondents than any other paper. And so I'd see these foreign correspondents kind of come back in. It was the summer, so some were coming home and sort of wafting into the office. And they all had like these kind of beaten leather satchels full of foreign newspapers and they spoke in foreign languages and they had suntans and they looked very exotic so I thought this is really interesting I'd like to be one of them so I spoke to them quite a lot and uh, one day the foreign editor was supposed to be going to a lunch of um, South Asian politicians and last minute he couldn't go so he asked me if I would like to go because I was always going on about India <laughs> and so I went to this lunch 
they were expecting the foreign editor of the Financial Times. They got the intern, but they were very nice to me. And I sat next to a man who was Secretary General of the Pakistan People's Party. And in those days, Pakistan was a military dictatorship under General Zia. The opposition leader was Benazir Bhutto, who was in exile in London. So this man asked me if I'd like to interview her. Uh, of course, I said yes. So it was arranged I'd go and interview her. So it was like my first big interview. And the day that I interviewed her was the day that she announced her engagement. So her flat was full of bouquets of flowers. I've never seen so many. And we got on very well. She couldn't be written about because there was censorship in Pakistan in the local media. So she was really dependent on the foreign media. Then I got this traineeship at Central TV. So I went to work there. She actually went back to Pakistan and a few months later, I came home from work in Birmingham and there was this most beautiful gold inscribed invitation on my doormat, which was to her wedding. And so, of course, I went. I'd never been to Pakistan and it was an incredible introduction. Anybody that's been to a South Asian wedding will know that they are very colourful. They go on for a long time. But also being Benazir Bhutto, leader of the opposition, it was a, a huge kind of affair and lots of well-known people were there. And every night after all the ceremonial events, there would be these gatherings in her house um, with her political colleagues to discuss how to try and topple the military dictator. So I was meeting these people who, some of them not much older than me, who had been imprisoned, arrested, tortured, tear gassed, all because they were trying to bring democracy to their country. And I'd never met anybody that these things had happened to. The most dangerous thing I had ever done was to get home late at night if I missed the last train in London. So I was absolutely fascinated and I thought I can't go back to covering local news in Birmingham. So when I went home, I gave him my notice and went to live in Pakistan. So it was all because of Benazir's wedding. Wow. It sounds like you weren't someone who was used to or had a particular appetite for taking risk. And yet that's the notion that we have about foreign correspondents and certainly people who report wars and conflicts. Is there a, is there a mismatch of reality and, and perception in terms of what um, foreign correspondents and those reporting on wars actually do and what what traits and skills they actually need? Well, I think like anything, there are a big variety of, of people doing it. And there are some people who are like the sort of stereotyped, hardened, hard drinking kind of war junkie. <laughs> um, but um, like I said, I actually didn't set out to do that. So I went to Pakistan, but when I went and spoke to foreign editors about reporting from Pakistan, nobody was very interested. And they said to me, we are interested in Afghanistan because at that time it was under Soviet occupation. And so there was a war going on to try and um, oust the Red Army. Because of that, I went to live in Peshawar on the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan. And I started traveling in and out of Afghanistan with the Mujahideen who were fighting. So I hadn't like gone off thinking I'm going to be a war correspondent, but I ended up doing it without really having thought very much about it. And to be honest, 
I mean, the most dangerous job in war reporting is photographer, because then you have to be right in the thick of the action to write about what's happening. You don't necessarily need to be being shot at, right? I mean, it's at least as interesting to me how people keep their life together during war, um, how they still feed and educate and protect their children and elderly. And frankly, the people doing that are mostly women. So I've always been much more interested in, in that side. And when I started out, I guess there weren't many women doing the job. It was a very male area. You have to bear in mind, it was a very different time. There was no internet, no mobile phone. So when I was sending reports back, it was kind of like I was just sending them into a black hole. I never saw the newspapers. I didn't I have no idea what anyone else was writing. And so I just wrote my dispatches. I, there was no phone lines in Afghanistan. So I couldn't send anything until I came back to Pakistan. And even then, there was no direct dialing phone. You had to go through an international operator. It was very laborious. I would say like almost 90% of the job was the logistics actually getting the story back. I mean, you can be the best journalist in the world, but if you can't get your story back, it's useless. And so things have changed a lot, of course, in that way. I think it's quite different now because you see what other people are doing and, you know, and certain lines become followed by people. And I just didn't do that. I just went wherever I was going. It was a very disorganized war. So you think you were going to one thing and it ended up being something different. I think an important, really important part of being a foreign correspondent is to be very open to things and not ever have a, a set idea about what you're going to because things on the ground tend to be very different to what you might have thought about from afar and certainly that war my impression before I went there was that this was a sort of very black and white David versus Goliath that these poor Afghans with their sort of rope sandals and old Lee-Enfield rifles fighting against the most powerful army on earth it was very clear-cut, sort of good versus bad. It was the, it's still the Cold War, so it was like the last battle, really, uh, against communism. And so it was quite ideological um, in terms of how many people reported it. I never really did that. I just went there and started talking to people and writing about what I saw and quite quickly realised that actually the... Afghan Mujahideen were doing some very bad things and that they were spending a lot of time fighting each other as well as fighting the Russians. And so I started writing about that, about how the Pakistan military was selling off some of the weapons that were being sent for the Afghans and selling them to the Iranians. And so there was a lot, as always, you know, things are very messy in wars and lots of different things going on and and so I just sort of started telling stories and very very quickly realized that Afghans are great storytellers that I couldn't make up stories more interesting than the stories I was hearing from these people which is why I sort of abandoned being a novelist and thought actually I'm going to tell real life stories. When was the first time you noticed that the stories or the ideas for stories that you were 
pitching to your editors back in London were were different to the stories that perhaps they had been used to? I'm not really sure I knew because I didn't see the paper. Communications were difficult because, you know, I didn't have, a, there was no mobile phone, so I'd have to uh, make a call. It was very expensive to call. Then you'd get through and the foreign editor would be at lunch or in a meeting and so it wasn't like I was having regular communications like you might now with emails and things. I didn't really have a clue what anybody thought about what I was doing. Um, and then I was suddenly told that I'd won Young Journalist of the Year and I had no idea that I'd been entered or or anything. So I suppose that was the first time that made me think I was doing anything kind of right. <laughs> you mentioned a moment ago that when you started reporting on war rape, that was a topic, a subject that perhaps editors were less comfortable with. Yes, until last year, I had never had a female editor. I had only ever had male news editors, uh, male or male head of news, male foreign editors and male editors of the paper, which considering I'd been a journalist for 33 years, I think is shocking. And um, it's all very well having female foreign correspondents. The Sunday Times where I worked, we had three of us uh, women who were the sort of main correspondents in these places. Myself, Marie Colvin, who was sadly killed in Syria, and Hala Jabba. But the people deciding what went in the paper and what priority to give it were all men. (laughs) Um, And I think that is very important because decisions were being made sometimes on basis of well I mean I certainly if I suggested stories about women I was often asked what the woman looked like in other words you know if it's an attractive woman (laughs) then we want a story and when I started writing about war rape uh, I was not encouraged (laughs) to do this at all And I was in the Eastern Congo and went to an amazing place called the Pansy Hospital. Eastern Congo is one of the worst places on earth in terms of the number of um, rapes. And there is a hospital there which has treated 55,000 women and girls for rape. And the week that I was there, a six-month-old baby and a four-year-old girl were brought in who'd been raped by militias. I mean, absolutely horrific. Uh, So I wrote a story about this and I was told by my foreign editor that nobody wants to read this, that this is, you know, not something appropriate for a newspaper. I was very lucky because the Sunday Times magazine was at that time edited by Eleanor Mills, um, who was a great advocate of women's issues. In fact, she was chair of women in journalism and she encouraged me. And so all those stories I wrote about war rape appeared in the magazine. They never appeared in the main newspaper. Would that have been the same story at other newspapers, do you think? I think even today there's very little reporting. I mean, considering I wrote a book about this because I was so shocked about what was happening. I was seeing thousands of women being abducted and raped. So if you go back to 2014, the Chibok girls in Nigeria who were abducted by Boko Haram, 
and that became a huge story really because of a hashtag bring back, bring back our girls and so lots of media went there and then I traveled around northern Nigeria and found that actually tens of thousands of girls had been abducted and we hadn't reported we're not reporting and then around the same time just a few months later ISIS moved into an uh, area called Shingal in Iraq, which was home to the, the Yazidis, and captured thousands of Yazidi girls to be sex slaves and traded them from one to another. And then in 2017, I was in Bangladesh when the Rohingya people were all attacked in neighboring Burma or Myanmar and the villages set on fire by the Burmese army and Buddhist militias and women were dragged out and tied to banana trees or in rice paddies and raped, gang raped in front of their children often. So all these things were happening on a big scale and the women were talking about it to us. We, you know, it was not unknown that it's very, very difficult to speak about these issues, you know, the worst possible ordeal that a woman could go through and they were bravely speaking and it was being reported. I couldn't understand why nothing was being done about it. And also these days you stay in touch with people you interview much more because of WhatsApp and everything. So some of the Yazidis I had spoken to were like, we told our story that nothing has happened. And I felt bad because the whole point in my view of doing this job, apart from informing people is to try and change things. You know, people read about injustices and hopefully act on them. And so I felt, just really terrible and shocked and so I started like looking at why is this happening and why is nothing being done and started to realize that you know this was a huge untold story that in so many countries honestly I could have spent the rest of my life reporting on this issue it's happening in so many places even as we speak in the Tigray region of Ethiopia in the Uyghur detention centers in China in some of the brave women that come out protesting in Belarus that are jailed. There's rape happening against all of these women. And there is a huge epidemic of this going on. It's a war crime and we are in 2021 and no one's doing anything about it. So it's been very interesting for me the last couple of weeks with since Sarah Everard's murder in Clapham and the outpouring that there has been particularly on social media from women talking about how unsafe they feel and what's happened to them and it's you know all part of the same thing in my view it's this sort of silence that there has been over um, some of these issues and you know I guess I feel that being a journalist is all about you know breaking that silence and telling people what is going on. I wasn't intending to write a book. I just wanted to understand why it was happening so much and why nothing was being done. In fact, when I started to talk to people about writing a book on it, lots of people said, why would anyone want to read a book about that? Because it's so terrible. And I thought there would be lots of books about this and, you know, histories of it. This is something that's been going on, after all, since sort of ancient Greek and Romans and Persians. I thought there would be more academic work. There are specific things. So, for example, Bosnia in the 90s, there was quite a lot of work on that. But 
bringing it all together, um, no. Um, so I didn't think I'd done something unique, um, but it appears that it was. Um, so I, I looked at 12 countries on four continents, but I could have spent the rest of my life doing it, as I said, because it's in so many places. And I mean, just recently, I it's not just against women, it's also men, that's even more taboo. Just recently, I interviewed somebody who'd spent 14 years in Guantanamo Bay without charge, who was tortured, waterboarded. And I asked him what was the worst thing that happened to him. And he said the sexual abuse. And I was a bit taken aback because I didn't realize that that had happened to him. And he said that um, female American guards had on three occasions um, sexually assaulted him and that now he just can't bear any intimacy or, you know, um, and he felt objectified and all of these things. And so, you know, it, it isn't something about specific cultures or far off places or religions or it's happening in so many different places and we fail to do anything about it. Um, I reason that it has not been reported more, I have to say, I think is because it has mostly been men reporting about these um, conflicts and they've not been interested in. Um, and if you look at military histories, most military historians are, are, are male. Interestingly, who has actually been very helpful to me on this book and issue is Anthony Beaver, the country's probably most eminent military historian, because when he was writing about the liberation of Berlin, he came across all these reports of rapes of women in Germany and as many as two million women were raped and it was all kind of hushed up afterwards and at the Nuremberg trials uh, there was no discussion of rape or sexual violence and interestingly when my book came out in Germany quite a lot of people contacted me and said you know this happened to my aunt or this happened to my grandmother and it was completely hushed nobody talked about it and so you know we first need to start speaking about these issues. You've spent a lot of time interviewing survivors for for your reporting and for, for your book. How do you approach that particular part of your role? This is something I've become really passionate about because actually as journalists, we're often the first people to interview deeply traumatized people. Like we're, when the Rohingya were fleeing across the border into Bangladesh, we're all standing there with microphones or notebooks where we're saying, what happened to you? And trying to get their stories. And often we're in a rush on a deadline and then they're telling these really shocking stories. We're not actually trained, right? We're not therapists or we have no psychological training. And we can do a lot of damage to people, I realise, by, you know, by re-traumatising them, making them retell stories. Same with um, aid workers, by the way. So now I've become work very interested and in working with survivors to try and come up with some kind of guidelines to help. Um, journalists working in these kind of areas um, of how best to interview survivors so that we don't cause more harm and that we do it in the way you know the most important thing is that they be allowed to tell the story the way they want to how they want to and that 
they don't just become their trauma. I think that was one of the things that really stuck in my head that lots of the people I spoke to said they don't want just to become their story. They want people to know that they people with dreams and hopes, you know, like any of us. And and that was very important. It was a real worry to me doing the book that I would be making people retell the worst possible thing that had happened to them. But in a way, the way I did it was I went to to uh, camps uh, where they had trained therapists or hospitals or organizations working with survivors, also legal organizations where survivors were trying to get justice. So they were already people who had come forward to want to tell their story. So I never kind of went to a place and, you know, used the apocryphal, has anyone here been raped and speak English? I first went to like third parties who then asked women if they would be prepared to talk. And to me, the most important thing it appeared was time. Like sometimes women wanted to spend days telling their story in enormous detail. And the last thing that you want to do is to rush somebody with such a a sensitive story and I know that that of course is very different for a book than when you're on a deadline and you're trying to get the most dramatic thing but you know these are people who something really terrible has happened to and we must never lose sight of that. I mean I liked the way that you told their stories over several chapters, I think, Christina, it didn't seem when I was reading the book that these were just case studies and then we were quickly moving on to something else or someone else. Is there is there an argument that all reporters just need to be aware that they have a responsibility after the story has been published? Well, I think, you know, people, for example, talk about consent and informed consent. It's not enough to say to somebody, you know, I'm working for the Sunday Times and this will appear in the Sunday Times. That might not actually really mean anything to somebody in in Congo or um, South Sudan. So, you know, it needs to be explained to people that if they tell their story, if they are photographed, that it's going to appear on the internet that anybody we have a paywall which actually i most of the time don't like having a paywall but sometimes in these sensitive situations is a good thing because then it means that the stories are not accessible by millions of people but you know i do think it's really important that it's explained to people properly that you know for the rest of your life if someone googles your name if you're giving your real name then this will will come up. Um, And we can also affect their legal cases because, you know, uh, for example, Nadia Murad, who became sort of face of the Yazidis, who spoke out as a UN envoy, has given so many interviews. And there's the details are often slightly different in each interview, which may be because of slightly misreporting or understanding, or maybe she said something in a slightly different way. Which means it would be impossible, I think, for her now to get justice for what happened to her because the defence would pick apart all of this. So I think we need to be very mindful of that too. Which of the survivors that you spoke to over the last few years, whether that's as part of your 
reporting or part of of your research for your book which is the one that that has left the greatest impression on you I'm going to pick two, if I may. I mean, it's very hard to choose, of course, because all the stories, you come out of every one of those interviews thinking, my God, you know, this is just the worst thing I've ever heard. But two quite different. One, um, a 16-year-old Yazidi girl who was telling me that she was taken by a fat ISIS judge who raped her, tied her to the bed and raped her every night. But she said the worst night of her life was when he brought back a 10-year-old girl and raped her in the room next door and she listened to this girl crying for her mother all night. I mean, my God, listening to this story. And the girl, it was so difficult for her telling this story. And I kept saying to her, are you sure that you want to continue? And she looked at me really fiercely and she said, yes, because I don't want anyone to be able to say they didn't know. And I guess, you know, that's what my book is about. But on the other extreme, I met these wonderful, dignified old grandmothers and great-grandmothers in the Philippines who more than 75 years ago were um, abducted by Japanese soldiers during the Second World War and kept as so-called comfort women. And, And these were girls often just 12, 13, hadn't even started their periods. For all their lives, these women have um, had to hide this secret because it was considered shameful. Only recently, in the last decade or so, have they spoken out. They've been waiting 75 years or more for justice. Uh, They'll probably die. Most of them have died already. There's not many left. They'll probably die without. For them, I mean, I think justice means different things to different people. Often it's just acknowledgement of what happened to them. And these women are cut out of history. They're not mentioned in their country's history books. And they've suffered for so many years. And when they have gone public, often their families have said, why have you done that? It's shameful for us. So I really feel that we owe it to whether it's the 16-year-old Yazidi girl or these 87-year-old Filipino great-grandmothers who are fighting for so long um, to be acknowledged that they did nothing wrong, that wrong was done to them. Just my last question for you. If more foreign correspondents, more reporters, reporters of conflict were women... How do you think that would change coverage and how would our understanding of the world uh, in conflict change as a result? Well, the good thing is actually now that there are lots of women doing it, particularly in the Middle East, um, particularly, I mean, Americans, lots of, and if you look at the big American papers, the New York Times, Washington Post, almost all their um, Middle East bureau chiefs and things are are female, which is amazing. Um, And so I do think it's made a difference because I do think that you can't generalize, obviously, but women often look at at different issues and are less interested in the sort of bang, bang, if you like, the fighting and more in how people live in these situations. So ideally, we have a mix and we have a mix of people deciding what goes in the paper and what gets prominence. Um, But things have definitely improved a lot from when I started.
being a foreign correspondent has changed enormously since I started um, in good and bad ways. Good way is communication. So now I can literally file a story from anywhere, from the top of a mountain in the Hindu Kush or in the middle of the desert, which for the most part is good. Sometimes it's annoying that your desk can reach you anywhere. It used to be quite good when they, they couldn't. Um, and it also means that you have less time often. to, And so you might be asked to report on something when you don't know very much, which is a real danger. But the bad thing is that it's become more dangerous, I would say. You know, we've become targets in a way that we weren't when I started out. Um, of course, you're going into war, it, it's dangerous. But if something happened to you when I started out, it was more bad luck or, you know, um, people weren't specifically trying to kill the journalists. And now, unfortunately, uh, that has changed and I've lost a lot of colleagues. But the thing that worries me now over the last year, obviously with COVID, I haven't traveled since the last trip I did was to South Sudan just over a year ago. I feel that we've become very inward looking, both because of COVID, which obviously is the biggest thing that has happened to us in our lifetimes, also Brexit, and that foreign coverage in the UK has been cut back enormously. That worries me because, you know, wars haven't stopped in in these places, bad things are going on, and it feels like we're a bit I don't know whether we've become fatigued that we are less shocked now at these things that happen and and people pass over them very quickly and that troubles me. You know, our role in the world has changed and we maybe don't have the influence. The UK used to really punch above its weight, which was useful as a British correspondent because it meant any conflict going on anywhere there was always sort of British involvement in trying to resolve the situation and um, and that in the last few years has really diminished a lot we definitely don't have the influence that we we used to have and now cutting the aid budget is going to um, weaken that further I mean, I feel like we forget things too quickly in the news. Uh, Some things, the biggest story on earth for two weeks, like the Chibok girls in Nigeria, and then no one does anything about it afterwards. And, you know, seven years on, more than half those girls are still missing. And it's always been very important to me to go back to stories. Um, I have a lot of fights with my newspaper over Afghanistan because that is the place I'm most passionate about where I started out. And I've gone back and forth. And I think there's just a fatigue about that people feel, you know, war's been going on for ages. Some people think the war's finished. It hasn't finished. More people are dying in Afghanistan than at any point over the last 20 years. But it's civilians. Um, I feel very strongly that we shouldn't forget those people. And I get endless messages from friends in Afghanistan who particularly women who are being forced into this terrible choice of whether they leave give up their jobs and leave or they stay there and risk being killed because they're being targeted and nobody should have to make that choice and I think it's incumbent on us to 
report that and make people aware 